wherever you all are, I have good news. Hi, welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Cynthia Hayes. You're listening to Gimme Good News Radio, an audio service of Gimme Good News Daily, hosted on WordPress. In today's show, we'll hear good news from Ohio, Alaska, and Louisiana. But first, let's visit Illinois, where nothing can stop a nun that wants to run. When the Chicago Marathon was canceled due to coronavirus, Sister Stephanie Baliga decided to put on her sneakers and run the standard 26.2 miles in her convent's basement. It started as a promise. Baliga had told her running team that in the event of a cancellation, she'd run a treadmill marathon to raise money for the mission of Our Lady of the Angels Food Pantry in Chicago. She planned to do it alone, starting at 4 a.m. to music from a boombox. Quote, but then my friend convinced me that this is kind of a crazy thing to do that most people don't do. That most people don't run marathons on their treadmill in their basement and that I should let other people know about it, end quote. And so her August 23rd run was live streamed on Zoom and posted on YouTube. That day, the 32-year-old nun wore a U.S. flag bandana and ran next to statues of St. Francis Assisi and the Virgin Mary. The loud crowds of the Chicago Marathon, which she ran the last nine years, were missing, but she still got the smiles of high school and college friends, clergy and family members who popped up on a screen and cheered her on. Quote, it seems to have allowed people to have some encouragement and happiness and joy in this time of extreme difficulty for lots of people, Beliga said. I'm really humbled by the extraordinary support that so many people have shown me along this journey, end quote. As she ran, she prayed the rosary. The last 30 minutes, though, were grueling. I was praying that I could make it and not fall off and just survive, she said. The final push came from a surprise on-screen appearance by Dina Castor, the 2004 Olympic bronze medalist. Quote, she's like my childhood hero, so that was super cool, Beliga said. That distracted me from the pain. Beliga also submitted her time of 3 hours and 33 minutes to Guinness World Records for time to treadmill marathon. Quote, the only reason I was able to do it was because no one had ever done it before, she said, smiling. More importantly, so far, her treadmill marathon has raised more than $130,000 for her mission's community outreach. Beliga, who began to run at the age of nine, previously competed on the Division I cross-country and track teams at the University of Illinois, where she studied economics and geography. She said her life changed after a powerful prayer experience, and she felt the calling to become a nun. But Beliga kept running after she joined the Order of the Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago. She launched the Our Lady of Angels running team to raise funds for the poor. Quote, all of us play this really important role. All of our actions are connected, she said. It's so important, especially right now when a lot of people feel isolated and far away, that people continue to sacrifice for each other and to be kind, end quote. You can read the story through a link at gimmegoodnewsdaily.wordpress.com. If you're living in Alaska, free training and support is available for family caregivers. 
please note the schedules may change. Confirm with your local agency before you visit. With senior centers still closed, the Kenai Peninsula Family Caregiver Support Program will hold all September peer support meetings on Tuesday at 1 at its new office location in the Blazy Mall. Social distancing will be respected and masks will be worn at the meetings and virtual attendance via Zoom can be arranged for those who can't make it in person. Different topics will be discussed at each meeting. Bring your questions and ideas. You may also schedule one-on-one -on -one appointments, and if you have questions concerning help in the home, staff can refer you to community resources. There's no charge for these services, and everyone is invited to attend. For more information, you can call Rachel or Judy at 907-262-1280. There's more information for Homer, Palmer, Southeast, Ketchikan, and Sitka. On the acreage, land raised for the Knit Arm Bridge, an orchard offers its first harvest. After years of planning, planting, and pruning, a group of Anchorage residents pressed their first large batch of juice from the Government Hill Orchard on Wednesday. Around a dozen board members from the Government Hill Commons, which manages the orchard and the roughly two acres upon which it sits, gathered to pick apples for gift baskets and to press the fruit with a donated cider press. Quote, we've come a long way in five years, said orchard manager Paul Lavervier, 80, who spends most days at the orchard tending to hundreds of trees. The small plot boasts 53 varieties of apples and 17 varieties of pears, as well as cherries, plums, grapes, strawberries, and even peaches. In the spring of 2015, the land where the orchard now stands was the site of the former Sourdough Lodge. The building and others nearby were raised to make way for a bridge over Nick Arm, a controversial mega-project that was shut down in 2016 by then-Governor Bill Walker. La Riviere started grafting apple trees for the orchard in his garage in the fall and winter of 2015, and the next spring many of them were moved to a temporary home nearby while work continued on the site. The following year, the trees were moved into pots, then to a Quonset hut, and finally into the first raised bed. Quote, it's a lot of work, said La Riviere, but it's worth it. Anyway, for me, it's worth it. Sometimes I'll come out here on a Sunday afternoon and just walk around and I'm pretty amazed, end quote. Today the orchard is far more than fruit trees. Organizers hope to start a sculpture garden in 2021, and they also have plans to create a community garden and possibly create what Government Hill Commons board member Steve Gerlich calls their version of the rustic goat, a popular West Anchorage restaurant and coffee shop. Le Riviere and others are constructing a fence out of pear trees and sculpting roses into an elaborate arch. They have provided flowers and empty beehives that they hope will be colonized by native bees and other pollinators. Quote, last year there was no fruit on this whole row except for this last tree, said Le Riviere, pointing to the first raised bed, which was planted in 2017. This year the row is full of trees bursting with apples. 
Every year we're going to do better, he said. We're always going to have new trees producing. Eventually we're going to have more fruit than we know what to do with. My heart is in this orchard. Quote, the oldest pear tree in North America is in Danvers, Massachusetts, which is near where I grew up, he said. It's a 298-year-old. The pilgrims planted it, and it's still there, and it still bears fruit. According to the New England Historical Society, the tree is actually older, planted sometime between 1630 and 49, which makes it closer to 400 years old. Quote, this neighborhood has been here for a hundred years, he said. There's no reason why in the next hundred years that this could be a feature that still exists. It should outlast us. That's the whole point. From the Alaska Journal of Commerce, hydro expansion is another step in grid improvement. Homer Electric Association Power Production Manager Bob Day explains the mechanics of the Bradley Lake Powerhouse turbines by showing off spare parts. The West Fork Upper Battle Creek Diversion Project officially opened August 27th will add more water to man-made Bradley Lake and allow facility managers to increase power production by about 10% toward the powerhouse's nameplate production capacity of 120 megawatts. A small valve opened in a remote mountain valley at the head of Kachemak Bay, sending a stream of water downhill that will eventually become a low-cost power for places as far away as Fairbanks. The Alaska Energy Authority started flowing water through its West Fork Upper Battle Creek Diversion Project August 25th. The $47 million project will increase the amount of water in nearby Bradley Lake, in turn increasing the practical power production capacity of the AEA-owned Bradley Lake Hydro Project by about 10%, according to the AEA project manager Brian Carey. Already the largest hydro plant in the state, Bradley annually produces about 380,000 megawatt hours of power for six electric utilities in Alaska's rail belt. The reliable supply of glacial-fed fuel stored behind the Bradley Dam can be used by utilities to manage the variable portion of their electric load and optimize operation of their gas-fired generators. Quote, we want our gas turbines to be at the sweet spot for maximum efficiency. Homer Electric Association Board of Directors Vice President Davis Thomas said during a tour of the new facilities. Quote, you could argue Bradley Lake is the largest battery in the state, end quote. The Bradley Lake turbines are rated to produce up to 120 megawatts of power at any given time, but constraints at both ends of the project have limited its average production to about 44 megawatts. And because Bradley power costs just four cents per kilowatt hour to produce, according to AEA, making it some of the cheapest power in the state, more is better, said Tony Izzo, CEO of Matanuska Electric Association. Izzo also chairs the Bradley Lake Project Management Committee. The Hydro Project is operated by HEA under an AEA contract. Feedstock natural gas for the utility's other power plants calculates out to a cost of about $0.08 cents per kilowatt hour. Quote, it's pretty easy to see the benefit of Bradley Lake when you look at the numbers, Izzo said. MEA is in the middle of studies to see how much variable renewable power its grid can accept and identify some of the prime areas for renewable energy generation in its service area. 
The Battle Creek project will add about 37,300 megawatt hours of production capacity to Bradley by diverting glacial water from the west fork of Upper Battle Creek and piping it nearly two miles to the man-made lake, enough power to light about 5,000 rail belt homes, according to the AEA. The 60-inch high-density polyethylene pipe buried largely alongside the project access road installed to carry the water from the lake can handle up to 600 cubic feet of water per second, equivalent to a small river, according to Carey. The diversion stream was flowing at about 60 cubic feet per second, or CFS, on August 27th, he said. Being short and steep glacial drainages, Bradley and Battle Creeks do not have many salmon, which makes them good candidates for harnessing their water, but they do have some. AEA is required to keep an average minimum flow of 15 CFS in Battle Creek to maintain fish habitat. Kerry acknowledged the project will likely change the fish habitat some. The stabilized flow is likely to benefit salmon such as kings that spawn midstream but could challenge others. He said Battle Creek was finished on time but slightly over budget. AEA previously pegged it at about $44 million, but Izzo noted it was completed within the parameters of the original financing plan, and small overruns are often a fact of life for that type of work. Quote, on a remote project in the mountains, that's not exceptional, Carey said. At about $16 million, the three miles of new road needed to reach the project accounted for approximately 40% of the overall cost of the work, which was led by the Anchorage-based Orion Marine Contractors. AEA and utility officials noted the recent agreement to purchase a 39-mile Saldona to Quartz Creek segment of the transmission line by authority from HEA is another small step along the commissioning of the Battle Creek project to spur more efficient power production and distribute rail belt wide. The SDQ transmission line was out of service for about four months last year following damage from the Swan Lake fire, which cost ratepayers to the north about $11 million by cutting off access to Bradley Lake and necessitating more gas-fired power. Even when the 115 kilovolt line is operational, it has line loss, or the amount of power lost during transmission, of about 40% at maximum capacity, according to the AEA engineering director, Kirk Warren. The goal is to eventually upgrade the S2Q line under AEA's ownership with financial support from the utilities that will benefit. Warren estimated upgrading the SDQ line to 230 kilovolts would cost $800,000 more per mile based on previous work, but it would also allow the utilities to access more Bradley power without losing nearly as much of it to the ether. Quote, it's part of the overall continuing effort to reduce rates or keep rates down and increase the use of renewables, Izu said. From Jambalaya News in Louisiana, an airplane that does not pollute. The Airbus project with hydrogen that takes off a new era in the industry. It's no longer a fad, not a dream. The fight for the environment is a reality, and the race to decarbonize the airline industry, European manufacturer Airbus has unveiled several hydrogen-powered aircraft models that are planned to operate within 15 years.
It is the first zero-emission passenger aircraft. The project, dubbed Zero-E, is preceded by a series of investments in alternative fuels and aerodynamic modifications to improve the efficiency of the aircraft. The announced designs envision the use of this element by producing water vapor in its combustion system instead of carbon dioxide, as it happens in reactors. One of them is shaped like a V-shaped combined wing inspired by the famous stealth bomber of the U.S. Army. The first prototypes will be tested in 2025, although the company says it will have commercial models ready by 2035. The other two feature conventional high-capacity designs with hydrogen hybrid turboprops and turbofans. A turbofan design characterized by having a fan at the front of the engine will allow it to accommodate between 120 and 200 passengers with a range of more than 2,000 nautical miles or 3,704 kilometers and will be capable of completing transcontinental flights. It will be powered by a modified gas turbine engine that runs on hydrogen instead of jet fuel. Thus, the liquid hydrogen will be stored and distributed through tanks located at the back. The second model presented has a turboprop design and will carry 100 passengers. It will use a turboprop engine instead of a turbofan and also powered by a hydrogen combustion system and modified gas turbine engines. It will be able to travel more than 1,000 nautical miles, or 1,852 kilometers. So it will be geared towards small-scale travel. The most striking in design concept will have a combined wing body and will seat up to 200 passengers. Its wings will merge with the fuselage and will be powered by a turbofan-type engine. With this project, the multinational based in France has deviated from other approaches taken by the aviation industry that has explored the possibilities of airplanes with electric motors to achieve the goal of flights with zero emissions. Hydrogen, he says, offers, quote, a promise as a clean aviation fuel, end quote. However, experts have shown their doubts about this electrical transition by ensuring that they are not designed for long distances. In contrast, hydrogen has raised important questions about possible safety problems due to the need to store potentially flammable liquid hydrogen. Quote, this is a historic moment for the commercial aviation industry and we intend to play a leading role in the most significant transition this industry has ever seen. The concepts we are presenting provide the world with a picture of our desire to drive a future of zero emission flights. Julaum Fari, Airbus CEO, said in a statement, quote, I strongly believe that the use of hydrogen both in synthetic fuels and as a primary energy source for commercial aircraft has the potential to significantly reduce the climate impact of aviation, end quote. And this from the Medina Trails Primer in Akron. Medina County Park District Education Manager Shelley Tender shares her favorite Medina County hikes. Plum Creek Park, the Tulip Tree Trail. Get a glance at this mature forest's blooming tulip trees on a 1.5 mile trek. In late spring, the cup-shaped blossoms are bright green and yellow, and in late fall, they turn a golden yellow. It's a really nice trail through the woods and has some topography differences, says Tender. Letha House Park, Pawpaw Grove Trail. You don't have to hike far to encounter charming scenery with this half-mile path. 
you pass a grove of pawpaw trees and it goes along a creek bed it's really beautiful Killbuck Lakes Primitive Trail. This fishing and canoeing spot brings you closer to native wildlife. The 0.7 mile trail has an observation blind so you can see trumpeter swans, chorus frogs, star-nosed moles, and bald eagles. It's not as refined as some of the trails. You're walking through the wetland area and a sectional habitat. It's filled with small shrubs and trees, and it serves as a great habitat for birds and butterflies. Brandywine Falls. After it rains, Monroe Falls photographer Rob Blair likes to visit the 60-foot cascading Brandywine Falls. Quote, it's pretty spectacular because it rages, he says. That's our mini Niagara Falls. Used Gorge Loop Trail, accessible via Stanford Trail. And the Station Road. The view of the Cuyahoga River from the Pinery Narrows area north of the Station Road Bridge Trailshead is majestic. Canton birder Scott Watkins makes visiting this section of the Cuyahoga Valley National Park special by looking for nesting eagles along the river and screech owls perched in soaring sycamore trees. Quote, getting to see an owl sunning itself is a beautiful thing, he says. Go on a sunny afternoon in the summer and bring a pair of binoculars to catch a glimpse of the birds. Observe from the Ohio and Erie Canal towpath trail, pinery narrows, or beaver marsh areas. And lastly, Warden's Ledges, towering 350 feet above Hankley Lake, the sandstone whips ledges get all the acclaim at the Hinkley Reservation, but the park is also home to the equally awe-inspiring Warden's Ledges. There are some more ledges that there is a bunch of faces carved into, says runner Joshua Kinches. It's kind of cool. Though covered in moss, you can still make out the carvings. Noble Stewart, the son-in-law of the land's owner, completed in the 1940s. On the 0.7-mile loop trail, spot a sphinx, George Washington, a schooner, and a Bible and cross, honoring his church-going wife, park at Warden's Trailhead. And it wouldn't be Ohio without visiting the Woodby Carvers Club, celebrating 25 years in Norton, Ohio. In the early 1990s, Norton resident Tim Crawford began taking an interest again in wood carving, something he was first interested in when he was 16 years old. The 69-year-old former Norton mayor and Summer County councilman had gotten away from wood carving for a while, but began taking an interest again, and for three years in the early 90s, he held a wood carving show and collected names and addresses of anyone interested in starting a wood carving club. He said 40 people were interested in the idea of the club, and he began the Woodby Carvers Wood Carving Club in April of 1995. Crawford, who serves as club president, said his dad was a carpenter and his grandfather was a pattern maker, which had a big influence on his interest in wood carving. Quote, there was always wood around the house, Crawford said. New Franklin residents, Mike Richards, who has been a club member for approximately 10 years, said he met Crawford at a tool sale at the Hartville Hardware when he was working on a walking stick for his granddaughter. 
Richards said each year the club does a carving project and hosts a raffle, and this year several members, including Richards, carved a rocking horse, which will be raffled off in December. He added club member Carl Nichols donated all the pieces of the horse, for which were approximately 11 squared-off pieces of wood. Club members began working on the horse this past October, carving the pieces, adding detail, gluing it together, and eventually painting it to create the first finished product. Richard said the horse is primarily made of basswood. Club members worked on it several days a week until the horse was completed this summer. Quote, I couldn't tell you how many hours we have in that horse, Richard said. Crawford said the horse is beautiful and there's a lot of fine detail in it. In addition, the club sometimes takes local trips, including going to purchase lumber for projects, he said. A past project by the club included a Christmas tree, which was displayed at Akron's Children's Hospital Holiday Tree Festival, Richard said. He said last year's club raffled off a Noah's Ark and animals carved out of wood. For next year's project and raffle, the club has plans to create a full-size carousel with a stationary horse and a brass pole, Richard said. He said he has enjoyed learning how to carve, as he didn't know anything about carving before joining the club. Quote, the first project I did was Uncle Sam, and I was such a bad carver it looked like Mr. Peanut, Richard said. No one starts out being an expert. Would-be carvers, Wood Carving Club has supported the Wounded Warrior Project by donating walking sticks at Canes and has also donated to the Ohio's Veterans Memorial Park in Clinton, Richard said. Crawford said he enjoys the opportunity to travel to other states to teach wood carving and to meet people. The club meets the first Tuesday of the month at 7 at 4109 South Cleveland Massillon Road, and members also work on carvings on Wednesday afternoons. There's no one in the club who wouldn't give advice or show someone how to carve, said Richards. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We'll visit more next time on Gimme Good News Radio. If you'd like to read along or find any of the articles you've heard today, visit www.gimmegoodnewsdaily.wordpress.com.